I'm Tavis Smiley, and this is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. I've been waiting on this conversation uh, in this hour. One of the most anticipated books of the year, King, A Life, publishes tomorrow. Finally. Uh, as I said, I've been waiting on this uh, new biography of Dr. King uh, for a while now. It is the first full biography of King in decades and is already being referred to as the definitive biography of his life with revelatory and exhaustive new research. The text has already caused a stir by claiming that MLK's famous criticism of Malcolm X was fraudulent, among other uh, controversies, other issues. The author of the book, uh, the biography, King, A Life, my friend and brother Jonathan Ike, joins us right now for the hour. Jonathan, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Tavis. It's good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you. It is good to hear your voice once again. Let me start this hour uh, on a note uh, of gratitude. Gratitude first for the text. Um, it's dense. <laughs> you did a lot of work uh, over a long period of time to bring us this new biography of King. So gratitude first for the text. And uh, I was surprised and in tears uh, when I saw the shout out to me. So thank you for the shout out in the book. It was very, very kind to you. Uh, I didn't expect to see that, uh, but it it just it made my heart glad um, to know that uh, that you referenced me in the book. So thank you very much for that. So I just want to start with a note of uh, gratitude uh, on, on those two fronts. Um, having said that, um, let me jump right in. I want to make the most of this hour, and I can't do justice to, a, again, a text this dense with this much new research, this uh, th- uh, this many new revelations. And the thing about it, for any of us who've written about King, uh, Taylor Branch, David Garrow, I don't put myself in their category. These guys are the best. Uh, and, and, and so is some guy named Jonathan Igg. I don't put myself in those categories. But if you've written about King heretofore, you can't wait to read this book because every so many years there's new research that comes out. Uh, FBI files, government files are released every so many years. And so uh, one might ask, how can they write another book about Dr. King? Well, it, it's <laughs> the subject matter is inexhaustible in part because, as I said a moment ago, new research continues to come out. So let me start with this, Jonathan. Um, you have a way of getting personal with your subjects and uh, I think in a very beautiful way, bringing their humanity to the fore and giving us a new way, a new lens through which to see these august personalities. You did that with your brilliant book, Ali, A Life, uh, award-winning text, and now you've done it with King, A Life. What made you want to train your lens on the person I regard as the greatest American this country's ever produced? Well, Tavis, let me say, first of all, you know, your book is one of the reasons that, I, that I, it occurred to me that we've been treating him like a monument and a national holiday for too long. Your book really made you feel the pain of King's last year, and it occurred to me that we need more books like that. We need more books that treat him like a human being and not um, some figure from the, the, the dark past of history, you know, so far back that, you know, it seems like ancient history to folks. Um, King, you know, would only be 94 if he were if he were still with us. His older sister is still alive. Um, there are still people around who knew him, and and knew how brave, knew how radical he was. We've softened his image so much over the years mm. that uh, we need a new biography every generation, at least, 
to uh, remember him properly and to understand you know how he fits in our world today. Yeah, he'd be 94 if he were living uh, uh, the same age as Noam Chomsky, who we had on this program not long ago. To your point, his older sister, Christine King Ferris, is still living. So, But for that bullet, uh, Martin King could, in theory, of course, still be living. I, I raise that to ask whether or not you think um, all these years since his assassination, um, whether or not he is still relevant to audiences today. Well, he's only relevant if we read his actual words and listen to his actual voice, if you buy the media version, uh, the hallmark version that we've had um, instilled in our heads since the holiday was created, then, then no, he becomes um, kind of just a two-dimensional figure. Um, and, you, you, and the problem is that you've got everybody using his words for their own purposes. The NRA is using him. You know, you've got opponents of affirmative action using him, saying that he would be opposed to affirmative action, which is ludicrous. So, um, it, you know, King is deeply relevant. He matters so much to our world today, but only if we actually, you know, remember who he wh- yeah. who he was, what he actually said and stop buying the um the, the candy-coated version. Yeah. Um to your point, how much more radical um did you find King than perhaps you initially thought given that again, we, we all buy this uh this notion of King, uh, you heard me say before, uh, quoting my friend Cornell West, that we have Santa Clausified uh, Dr. King. That's that's Cornell's point. That we've Santa Clausified him. We've we've tamed him. We've deodorized him. We've defamed him. Uh, he's anything but the radical King. He's like a, a a jolly old man with a bag of toys on his back, and that's the image that we have of King. Uh, and so I take your point um, that we need to rethink all that. No doubt about that. But what did you make of the more radical King that you discovered in the writing, the telling of your story in the book King: A Life? One thing I discovered in going back through the papers and going through, back through his letters um, and going back through some archival documents that I found that uh, are new, including the entire um, official historian of the SCLC, all of his papers, thousands of pages, which had never been seen before. One of the things you find is that King was radical all along. We like to tell the story that he grew more radical in those last years, you know, when he came to Chicago and when he started attacking, you know, segregation and racism in the North when he started attacking the Vietnam War, but that's not true. He was just as radical from the day he stepped off of the college campus and moved to, to Birmingham, I'm sorry, to Montgomery, Alabama. It's just that he was a little bit busy. Um, mm-hmm. He was fighting the, you know, the, the bus uh, boycott battle to begin with, and then, you know, one um, marched to another, one city to another in the South, um, so the South made it easy to think that he was only talking about Southern racism because that's what he was doing most visibly. But all that time that he was fighting in Selma and Birmingham and Albany, Georgia, he was also flying around the country. He was going to Los Angeles. He was going to Chicago, going to San Francisco and Philadelphia and saying, you're not much better. You might be worse in some ways when it comes to segregation than it is in the South. So I think, you know, we just weren't listening to it in those early years. Yeah. As I said moments ago, this book has been exhaustively researched. Uh, Jonathan, uh, did he did the hard work. Uh, of reading everything that needs to be read, uh, all the new documents that have come out since others have written books about Dr. King. And let me just tell you three things we're going to unpack in this hour. There are certainly more than three uh, that you've never heard because it, it hasn't been out until now. Uh, one, uh, in no particular order, Jonathan uh, has a different take, uh, a deeper take on the relationship that Dr. King had with his father, Daddy King. Uh, we tend to think of Daddy King and Dr. King as cohorts who co-pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Indeed, they did. Um, but King's father had a temper. 
he was a stern disciplinarian. Uh, uh, he spanked uh, his kids, including Dr. King, uh, whipped them with a belt, if you will. Uh, and there was a there was a, 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 a terse, uh, tense at times relationship uh, between uh, Dr. King, who was called Little Mike when he was a kid, believe it or not. Uh, they called him Little Mike. Uh, but we, we learn more in this book about the relationship between Martin and his father, Daddy King. Um, uh, some of you know, you've heard me talk about it before, that. Uh, twice in his life, Dr. King tried to commit suicide. We learn more about that uh, in in this book. We learn more about um, LBJ and MLK and the relationship between the two. We learn more about all that Hoover uh, was telling Johnson about Dr. King, given that he had uh, King under surveillance all the time. We can we tend to think of King and Johnson as friends until they fell out around the Vietnam War. Not so much. Uh, you're going to learn more in this hour about all the stuff that Hoover was feeding. LBJ, that LBJ wanted to know about King's whereabouts, his movements, his words, etc. Um, and so Johnson, um, we see Johnson through a different lens now, uh, given uh, this book. And as I mentioned moments ago, uh, we've learned uh, some more, according to Jonathan's book, uh, about King's um, critique of Malcolm X. Uh, uh, Jonathan sees that critique um, that we've been hearing for years as fraudulent. We'll talk about that and interrogate that. A lot uh, of new stuff about Dr. King in this book out tomorrow. It's called King, A Life by Jonathan Igg. The book drops tomorrow, but he loves us so that he came to see us the day before. More with Jonathan Igg when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Our guest in this hour is Jonathan Igg. He is author of the best-selling book, Ali, A Life, and now he has written King, A Life. Uh, dissecting uh, the life uh, and legacy, the work and witness of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, King Alive is the first comprehensive account of uh, uh, this civil rights icon in decades, already being referred to as the new definitive biography of MLK. Such uh, is the work of Jonathan Ike, who I'm delighted to have on in this hour. I want to spend the rest of the hour, Jonathan. Um, I, I suspect you'll be doing a, a gazillion interviews uh, about the book, and I want to make ours uniquely different because I really want to focus this conversation on the new stuff, the stuff that um, you have brought us that uh, many of us, including yours truly, did not know here to four. Let me start with this and we'll work our way through the hour. Um, the relationship between King and his father, Daddy King. Um, talk about that relationship as you describe it in the new book. Well, I was always fascinated by Daddy King. I think he's one of the great American heroes of our time. And he, you know, we should be writing operas about this guy who is born into sharecropping. Uh, his, his parents were, were born into enslavement. And he grows up on this farm in Stockbridge, Georgia, where he's his father um, is really given up on life. He beats his kids and beats his wife and drinks too much. And, and you know, just um, the white landowner is um, just so abusive that, that the King family is falling apart. Daddy King, Martin Luther King Sr., leaves the farm, walks to Atlanta with his shoes slung over his shoulders so that he won't wear them out, and remakes himself, becomes this entirely new man teaches himself to read and write and preach and becomes the leader of Dex, of, I'm sorry, marries really into the, and becomes the leader of, of, of the church um, and becomes, you know, really a, a leading figure and not just a great preacher, uh, but an activist in Atlanta. And, you know, in, in creating his, his new family with his wife, Alberta, launches a kind of new American royalty, really makes it possible, creates the conditions in which Martin Luther King Jr., can 
thrive and prosper and lead our, our nation. Um, but it's not easy. You know, he's still a troubled man, and the relationship between Daddy King and Martin Luther King Jr. is a really difficult one. They, they uh, you know, as you mentioned before the break, um, Daddy King whooped his children, used a belt sometimes for it, and um, and the kids grew up with a great deal of pressure. It's, you know, it's hard enough growing up in the church when everybody's got their eyes on you and, and um, everybody in the community knows you're the, you're the, you're the, the preacher's son. Um, so Martin Luther King Jr. grew up with a lot of pressure, a lot of expectations, but he always wanted to be more like his mother in many ways. He wanted to get past that sort of um, country-style preacher that his father was. He felt a little bit embarrassed by his father's rough edges. Mm. Um, I want to come to his mother in just a second. Uh, let me let me just back up right quick. Um, uh, this is something that always fascinates me. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., as we now know him, uh, went through a number of iterations about his own name. <laughs> uh, as you know, you write about it in the book. When he was little, they called him Little Mike. Uh, not Martin, Little Mike. And then he started going by ML. He went by ML for a good part of his life. So Little Mike then ML, and then he becomes Martin Luther King Jr. as we know him. Uh, what was your takeaway um, from uh, the, the process of, of getting to the name that we know him by? Well, he was always very ambitious, um, and he always wanted to be um, different from his dad, too. So even when he went off to Crozier Seminary, and he was you know two, three years younger than most of his classmates because he skipped some grades, he was still ML. It wasn't really until he got to Boston and... Um, began studying for his doctorate, that he began introducing himself as Martin. And I think he just wanted to be a little more intellectual about it. But I think he and his father both really liked the idea that they were choosing this name, um, Martin Luther, which was not on Daddy King's birth certificate either. They were choosing it in part because they were um, celebrating and, and attaching themselves to this great religious reformer, this great rebel. And um, there was something really powerful about that. It was a badge of honor. Yeah. Um, to his mother, um, let me just ask, what qualities um, in your research and in your writing um, do you assess that Martin took from his father, and what qualities uh, did he take from his mother? I think he got his toughness and his fight from his father, and I think he got his, his warmth and sense of humor from his mother. Uh, Daddy King often said that nobody understood Martin Jr. like his mother, that they had this almost, you know, telekinetic, um, you know, connection that, that she could tell what he was feeling. And, you know, Martin Luther King was a very sensitive man. He, he, it's tough to be so famous and to feel so sensitive because the criticism wounded him. He hated when, um, you know, other black leaders called him out for being too conservative. He, he even got sensitive when newspapers wrote editorials about him that were unkind. You know, he, he had feelings. And, and at the same time, he was warm and bubbly, and, and people loved being in the room with him. Um, and that came from his mother. His mother was just a, a warm, lovely person who who was a good listener. And Daddy and and Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. was also a great listener, which is so rare among you know leaders and people who you know might develop big egos. He was always a great listener. Yep. To your point, now I want to come uh, later in this conversation to how you uh, process the fact that uh, Dr. King was for some too progressive and for others too conservative it's a fascinating dichotomy uh to be him and to be considered too progressive by some uh too conservative by others we'll talk about that when we move through this hour let me stay with uh, this for the moment uh his childhood um again um, some of us know that uh, he was a sensitive child uh and that uh, certain things upset him even as a as a youngster and on two occasions 
uh, although he, he wasn't really hurt or harmed, in his mind at least, he was attempting suicide on two different occasions. What did you learn about that, Jonathan Ike? Both were related to his grandmother. You know, he and his brother, he and uh, his brother A.D. were playing around the house one day, and they accidentally knocked into their grandmother, and they, and she fell down and got hurt. And, and Martin was so upset that he ran to the second floor and, and threw himself out of a window. And, and then um, when he um, when he learned that his grandmother had died, you know, much later, it wasn't related to the to the initial fall. Um, when when she had actually died of heart failure, he once again became so upset that he jumped out the window, and, and he wasn't badly hurt. So you have to wonder, you know, he probably knew that he wasn't likely to die from a second-story fall, but it, it goes to show how sensitive he was. And, uh, oh, the other thing I wanted to say before about his sensitivity is that mm-hmm. he learned as a teenager that his father was a womanizer, that his father w- was not being faithful to his mother. And that was a devastating experience for young Martin Luther King Jr. And he told one of his best friends, someone who I got to interview, uh, June Dobbs Butts, he told her that he was... He would never do that. He would never um, be disloyal to his wife. And, and um, of course, um, you know, he struggled with fidelity the same as his father did in the end. But yeah. it was really painful to hear that, that uh, he learned this about his father and, and uh, felt so deeply upset about it. Yeah. What, what do you make of that? Uh, since you went there, we'll, we'll jump there and we'll, we'll just jump around through this hour. Because, <laughs> uh, again, okay. there's, there's, there's a lot of new stuff in this book, so I'm just going to follow your lead uh, and weave in the stuff that I want to get to that is new in this book, uh, King, A Life is the Biography, uh, that is out tomorrow. In case you've just tuned in, we're talking to the author of that book, the fine author, Jonathan Igg, uh, also the best-selling author of Ali, A Life, so he knows how to give these treatments to these uh, bigger-than-life figures. What, 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 what did you make of that? I've wrestled with that myself, that, that, that Martin knew that his father um, uh, uh, was a womanizer, to use your words, and he struggled in his own life with his own fidelity issues, and yet he was so troubled by that as a young man when he discovered it, but he emulates that behavior later on in his own life. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. Uh, but but, but, but what, what did you make of that in your, in your own writing, Jonathan? Well, I'm not a psychologist either, but um, you know, Ralph Ellison once wrote that it was an occupational hazard for Southern Baptist preachers, <laughs> and um, and um, Martin Luther King Jr. knew it, talked about it as a young man, and the interesting thing is that he 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 felt extraordinary guilt about it, and and Coretta talked about this, said that he could never um, do anything without confessing to it later, and you know, one of the interesting things that I discovered was uh, taped a series of tapes that Coretta made um, right after her husband's assassination when she began working on her memoir. And in that um, recording, on, on one of those tapes, she says she caught him with another woman before they were even married. Um, so she clearly knew that he had issues, and, uh, and, and she said he, 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 was, he was guilt-ridden over it and confessed it um, after it happened. So it's a, it's a thread that runs throughout his life, and it's, you know, I, I think that Dr. King, and I know you agree with me on this, is, is a great enough and important enough figure that we can acknowledge that he, that he was human like, 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 uh, like, like the rest of us, that none of us are perfect, and that does not diminish his greatness in the least. No question, no question at all about that. I say all the time that he is a public servant and the greatest ever. A public servant, not a perfect servant. A public servant, not a perfect servant. Uh, is the way I put it. Since you mentioned Coretta, again, I'm following you through this hour. Many don't know, and you, uh, of course, researched all this, that Coretta was not his first love. People don't know that Martin Luther King Jr. had another first love, and she was not a black woman, Jonathan I. That's right. He met Betty Moitz at um, Crozier Seminary when he was just out of Morehouse, and she was the daughter of the, of the university's chef, uh, a white woman, 
German ancestry, and uh, Martin Luther King, when he was still being called Mike and ML, fell in love with Betty and talked about marrying her, even mentioned it to his father, mentioned it to uh, J. Pius Barber, who was, who was his mentor, and um, they, they begged him not to, not to marry her. They said, your career would be over. You would have no chance of, of leading a church uh, in the South, maybe not even in the North. Um, and, and even though he continued to feel strongly about her, he, he broke it off. And um, Harry Belafonte, um, may he rest in peace, told mm-hmm. me that, that he felt like Dr. King never got over that, that it was, he was haunted by it for the rest of his life, that he uh, felt like Betty Moitz was, uh, was a true love. Yeah. I've often thought about whether or not he would have become the Dr. King that we know him as had he married that white woman. Uh, I've often thought how he, how, how he would be regarded uh, as a leader uh, of this movement, married to a white woman. Uh, it, there, there are all kinds of, of, of conversations one has with oneself and one realizes that about him and the way things might have been different. Uh, had a, uh, his relationship gone the way he wanted to go before he met Coretta Scott King and, of course, fell madly in love with her and the rest, as they say, is history. But, uh, again, many, uh, I'm sure, have just learned for the first time here in this conversation that Coretta Scott King was not his first or only love, that his first love was indeed a white woman, but he knew, uh, he accepted the fact, um, as his father and others told him, that his life uh, would not um, uh, be the same if he made that decision uh, and so he did not. Uh, when we come forward, a great deal more to talk about with Jonathan Ike about his new book, King, A Life, out tomorrow. We haven't gotten to Jago Hoover yet. We haven't gotten to uh, uh, Jonathan's take on uh, Martin's critique and criticism of Malcolm X, uh, and a great deal more new in this book, King, A Life. You're listening to Jonathan Ike right now on KBLA Talk 15. The new biography of Dr. King, King, A Life, uh, the first in decades, already already being uh, regarded as the definitive new biography of Dr. King. It's called, once again, King, A Life. It publishes. It drops tomorrow, but we are honored to have the author of that book on this program the day before. His name is Jonathan Igg. I'm delighted to be in dialogue with him. Jonathan, we were talking before news, traffic, and sports uh, about uh, King being a public servant and not a perfect servant. I read now. Uh, from the New York Times in, the, in uh, their review of your text, uh, I quote, this is a very human and quite humane portrait, a very human and quite humane portrait of Dr. King. I struggled uh, in the writing of my text uh, in the chapter or so uh, about uh, his infidelity, uh, and yet uh, the New York Times uh, regards your text as hum- human and quite humane. How did you balance that? Well, I felt like the important thing about King's flaws was the fact that the FBI weaponized them. Number one, that's without a doubt. Um, we all have flaws. We all make mistakes. He was, um, you know, he struggled with, with fidelity in his marriage, and um, we know that for a fact. The FBI uh, transcripts, uh, the recordings from his phones and his hotel rooms confirms it, but that's not what's important. What's important is that the FBI took this information and tried to destroy King destroy the civil rights movement, and created the conditions, knowingly, in which someone might want to assassinate the man. So to me, that's what matters most. So I was not going to shy away from it in writing about these things in my book. I was going to be honest, because if you don't tell the flaws, why should anybody believe the the greatness? Um, but at the same time, I tried to keep it in context and keep a sense of perspective about it. Yeah, and to your, and, uh, to your point about assassination, as you well know and write about it in your text, 
um, they encouraged him, <clears throat> encouraged him to assassinate himself. This is the FBI sending him messages. You might as well just kill yourself. Uh, that's how badly they wanted to get rid of Dr. King. Um, before I before I continue with this conversation about uh, Dr. King and get to the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover and the Kennedys and Lyndon Johnson, um, a quick question here. Um, you wrote, as I said earlier, uh, uh, Ali a life, King a life. Both brilliant men, both flawed in a variety of ways. Did you find a parallel between Ali and King? Well, they, they obviously both struggled the same way um, when it came to the women in their lives. But uh, beyond that, not much. Okay. <laughs> they, they, they could not be more different, except they both really uh, enjoyed people and, and had a great sense of humor. And, and the times that they met, they had a great time together. They really liked each other a lot. Yep. Nope. I just wanted to ask that question to see if there's something there. I take your point. All right. Let me move now on to uh, to we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it in chronological order. We'll go to the Kennedys first. Uh, there's some new stuff in your book about the uh, the relationship. We talked about the, uh, his relationship with his dad being tense and terse at times. Uh, that's an understatement when it comes to the Kennedys. Uh, John F. Kennedy and, and and Bobby Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, complicated relationship with MLK. How would you frame it? I would say King was deeply disappointed with the Kennedys once they took office. He thought that they were going to be great allies in the struggle for equal rights, and they they were they were cold. They were they were reluctant. They were afraid to take a chance on civil rights legislation because it might cost them some votes in the South. And you know, at the same time, King didn't even realize how badly they were treating him when it came to authorizing the wiretaps. That was Bobby Kennedy who authorized the FBI to begin wiretapping King's associates and to begin wiretapping King's home and office. Um, so he didn't even know that, how bad it was. But he certainly knew that um, the Kennedys needed to be pushed. They were not going to be his great allies unless he really, you know, stuck a crowbar in there and forced them to. And, and that's what he did. That's what happened in Birmingham. Um, that's what King, you know, did his best work when he had to go to work against people who were slow to respond to his calls for justice. To the point we raised earlier that for for many, King was too progressive. Uh, for many others, he was too conservative. Um, how, 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 how did you navigate uh, that uh, distinction between uh, those who saw him one way and those who saw him yet another way? Well, I think, you know, King was much more radical than we give him credit for now. And even in his time, he was much more radical. And it was easy for folks like Malcolm X uh, to criticize King and, and, and call him an Uncle Tom because he was, you know, taking phone calls and meetings with the president of the United States and because he was seemingly presenting this um, this offer to negotiate and to compromise. But King was was, was no moderate. He, um, you know, he had access to power, and he intended to use it. Um, and and he was certainly moving more and more toward these radical positions as he gained, you know, one step at a time. So one of the things I love about King is that he never um, quarreled with the with these people who were criticizing him. He listened. He wanted to get to know Stokely Carmichael. He wanted to get to know Malcolm X, and he was open to learning from them. So it was it was really unfair that. But then again, you know, I can understand why Malcolm X found it useful, yeah. and Stokely Carmichael too found it useful to play themselves against King to position themselves as the more dangerous alternative. We'll come back um, uh, in a moment here um, when we come forward. We'll get to your uh, new uh, uh, data, uh, your new research about King, uh, Martin, and Malcolm. But uh, since I did the Kennedys, let me go now to LBJ. And this this is the part of the book that I found really, really fascinating. 
Um, and you you drill down on this thing, man, in a beautiful way. And we see LBJ in a different light. I don't want to color it too much. I'll pass the mic to you and let you explain it. Um, but we, we see LBJ differently in your book. Um, people tend to think that LBJ and MLK got along until they didn't around the Vietnam War. But that's not the story you tell of Hoover feeding Johnson information about King all along. Take it away, Jonathan Hyde. Well, I discovered that LBJ was keeping a lot of his most personal private letters in the safe, in his secretary's safe. So uh, they had not yet been discovered. Nobody had opened these files until I requested them. And what they showed was that LBJ was not only being um, informed several times a week about the, the dirt on Dr. King, he was encouraging it. And you know, we've often portrayed LBJ as King's partner in civil rights, and he was a great partner in passing the Voting Rights Act and passing the Civil Rights Act. But at the same time, um, LBJ was, was, was no friend to King. He was, he was backstabbing him. Just at the same time he was shaking his hand, he was encouraging the FBI surveillance, and he seemed to be enjoying the gossip around King's personal life. And um, you can even hear it in their phone calls. You know, you can go onto the LBJ presidential website, and you can listen to all these phone calls that, that LBJ recorded secretly, um, including phone calls with Hoover and including phone calls with King. And when, um, when LBJ takes office, he calls him Martin. They have a wonderful relationship. The dialogue on the phone is warm and, and friendly. And over the time, that, as time goes by, you hear that cold voice, cold, that chill slipping into his voice. He starts calling him Dr. King and Reverend King, and the, the friendship is gone, and, and um, you just know that, that mm. King is being undermined by this, by this campaign by Hoover and that, that um, LBJ is, is a part of it. What do you make of the fact, uh, Jonathan, that, that LBJ did nothing to stop or rein in the FBI? He knew about it. To your point, he seems to, to, uh, to have delighted in it. We'll get to the press in just a second, the, the, the media. But, but what do you make of the fact that he did nothing to rein J. Edgar Hoover in? That guy was out of control. Johnson knew it. He did nothing to rein him in. Johnson could have required LBJ to step down at the at the uh, maximum at the minimum retirement age. Uh, he was expected to retire at 70. Certainly, after taking over for an assassinated president, LBJ had enough clout that he could have told Hoover it was time to step aside. But he chose not to. The men were friends; they were buddies for years, even before um, LBJ became president. And as I said, I really believe that LBJ was simply enjoying the prurient details of King's life. He enjoyed gossiping. He enjoyed sharing that information with other um, p- elected leaders. And it, it was just, it, it's frankly, it's disgusting. Yeah. I write, I write in, in, in my book um, of my disregard, uh, uh, disdain, frankly, uh, for the media in the ways in which they treated Dr. King the day after his uh, Beyond Vietnam speech, which I don't need to educate you about. You know it well. You've written about it brilliantly in your book. That's my critique of the press specifically in that moment. They went in on King. I'm talking now about the so-called liberal press who just tore him a new one the day after that Beyond Vietnam speech. Again, you know that well. But your book, again, so much more exhaustive, so much, so much, so much better than what I could do about the, that one last year. But you, you make the point that members of the press knew about the FBI campaign uh, against Dr. King, and if LBJ didn't stop Hoover, certainly the media had all they needed to write the story to rein Hoover in themselves, given what he was doing to Dr. King, but members of the press chose to not expose the Bureau's campaign. Talk to me about that part, Jonathan. That's right. For years, Hoover was leaking the details of King's sex life to reporters, including photographs of some of the women that he was seen with. And 
we, the press has been congratulating themselves for years. This is the white press, I should say. They've been congratulating themselves for years for not reporting on King's sex life as if they had done him some great favor. But they could have reported on J. Edgar Hoover's ruthless campaign to undermine one of our country's moral leaders. They knew that a private citizen was being bugged and watched by the, by the FBI for years, and the, and the press did nothing about it. Why didn't the Washington Post or the New York Times write that story? Mm. When we come forward, um, was Martin's critique of Malcolm fraudulent? Jonathan Eig on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Jonathan Eig, let's talk about Martin and Malcolm. And I want to get to this because um, when this story broke uh, of what you discovered um, in your research for your book, King, A Life, about Martin's critique of Malcolm, uh, my ears uh, perked up, uh, in part because uh, I know the Alex Haley family. I'll let you tell the story in a moment, but I know the Alex Haley family. And I went back to read the obit of Murray Fisher, who died at 69, the obit in the L.A. Times. As you know, uh, Murray Fisher uh, helped shape uh, the interview that you're about to reference now. I don't, I don't want to get ahead of you, but uh, Murray Fisher helped shape that interview uh, that Alex Haley did with uh, MLK for Playboy, the Playboy interview. Murray Fisher left Playboy, as you know, and went to work with Alex Haley when he did his book Roots. Uh, and so you'll see where I'm going with this in a, in a second. So I want I want to I want to push you a little bit on what you're about to say, but I'm going to let you say it first. Tell me what you learned about Martin's critique of, of Malcolm and why you called it fraudulent. Well, it was fraudulent because um, the quote that Playboy published um, when Malcolm, uh, where Martin Luther King was asked about Malcolm X um, and what he thought about Malcolm. The quote was, was, was fabricated, was dramatically changed, and in part completely fictionalized. Um, in, in the Playboy magazine article, the, the way they published it, it, it read, um, in his litany of articulating the despair of the Negro without offering any positive creative alternative, I feel Malcolm has done himself and our people a great disservice. Fiery demagogic oratory in the black ghettos urging Negroes to arm themselves and prepare to engage in violence, as he has done, can reap nothing but grief. It's one of the most famous quotes that we have from Martin mm -hmm. Luther King about Malcolm, and it's false. It's, I, I went to the library where Alex Haley's papers are kept, and I got the transcript of the tape, the original recording of uh, that interview, and in that interview, King said none of that about Malcolm X. He said a little bit of that about the Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. But when he was asked about Malcolm X, he said none of that. What he said about Malcolm X was that he disagreed with many of his views, especially concerning violence, but I don't want to make it sound like my way is the only way. So he expressed a lot more open-mindedness toward Malcolm, and Playboy magazine, Alex Haley, um, his editors, uh, they changed the words to, to try to create a greater sense of controversy and... Um, and animosity between the two men. Yep. You may have just uh, answered the question that I, that I want to ask, so you're, you're pressing in that regard. Because when I, when I, when I read that story, uh, and I couldn't wait, of course, to get I I'd already started reading your book. Thankfully, you sent me a, an advanced copy of it, so I was halfway through it by the time this controversy erupted about what Malcolm did or did, what Martin did or did not say, rather, about Malcolm and uh, how fraudulent it might have been. Uh, but I went to read um, uh, this um, obit of Murray Fisher. So, again, to the audience, Murray Fisher, um, and you can read it for yourself. Go to the L.A. Times website, uh, find the obit of Murray Fisher, uh, uh, June 5, 2002. And you can read what I've read. So this ain't nothing I'm telling you that you can't find yourself. But there were all kinds of issues and questions raised in the obit of Murray Fisher 
uh, about his penchant for changing words. And I raise it only because um, we have demonized Alex Haley in, in, uh, to a great extent. There have been questions about the veracity of certain passages and roots. Now you raise questions about the veracity of what King said in the Playboy interview. And I guess the question is, are we, are we, are, are we slapping Alex Haley for that? Or are we going to look at Murray Fisher, the editor of, 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 of the article and the guy who worked with him on the book Roots? And again, I'm, I'm not I'm not I don't know where the truth lies. I'm just raising a question because Murray Fisher, again, was not a paragon of virtue, uh, if I can put it that way. No, that's a good point. And uh, all I can say is that we don't know uh, who made the changes. We only know that Alex Haley conducted the interview and the article appeared under Alex Haley's byline. So um, there's nothing, in, and I, there are also in the in the archives at Duke University where I found these papers. It's an 84-page transcript of the interview with Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some letters between uh, Haley, between Murray Fisher, between the editors of Playboy, and there's nothing in there that suggests who made that decision to change mm-hmm. the quotes. Uh, but we do know that you know Alex Haley had his name on the story. Yeah. Uh, it's his byline. I think he bears the responsibility finally for signing off on it at the very least if he didn't change it himself. Our remaining moments with Jonathan Igg when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Cannot do justice to a book uh, this rich uh, in an hour. It's called King, A Life, uh, written by Jonathan Igg. It is going to be, it already is, the new definitive biography of the life and legacy, the work and witness of uh, Dr. King. Uh, Time now for a couple more things I want to get to before we lose Jonathan at the top of the hour. Uh, one, um, again, new stuff in your book. You unpack some of the health challenges. I was just talking to Nasir Gaimi uh, a couple of days ago, who I saw you talk to for your text. Uh, he's working on a book about King's mental state. But King had health issues uh, and stresses that aged him prematurely. When they did the autopsy, they found out he had the body of a 60-year-old man, even though he's dead at the age of 39. What did you learn about the health issues, Jonathan? Well, obviously, he was under tremendous stress his entire life, and you document the, the peak of that stress in your book so well. Um, but all his life, really, he struggled emotionally. He always you know, felt this great burden on his shoulders, um, the sense of responsibility. And, you know, he, 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 you, you, you really, your heart goes out to him because over and over again, and we can hear him on, the, uh, on these phone calls that the FBI recorded, you can hear him basically saying he wished he could stay longer in the hospital. He would go for a checkup, and he would wish he could stay longer. He was hospitalized numerous times for exhaustion, and, and Coretta referred to it as depression. Jesse Jackson referred to it as depression. Um, in my interviews with people who knew King best, they felt like he was really nearing the end of his rope. They didn't know how he was going to continue um, in those last couple of years. And and it's, it's, it's really hard to see because he's trying so hard. I mean, even when he... When he wins the Nobel Prize and the and he gets the news, he's in the hospital being treated for exhaustion. Mm. So it's it's just it's it, your heart goes out to the man and and you, you appreciate his sacrifice all the more. Yep, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. We had a conversation about that in our prior hour. Uh, so a propitious uh, month to be having this conversation in uh, about Dr. King's mental health with uh, the author of the book, King of Life, Jonathan Icke. Let me close on a funny note, Jonathan. I'll tee you up for this. You know the story. You wrote the, you wrote the book. Uh, King loved Southern food, of course. Uh, he particularly loved chicken. Uh, there's a funny story in the book <laughs> about chicken as a healing balm. Can you tell it? <laughs> yeah, I found this. You know, David Halberstam <laughs> did a great article on, on King and um, – I went to his archives and I went through his notes and he had in one of his notebooks he had this little anecdote that didn't make it into his article. He said he he had a rare day off with the kids and he went to a friend's house in Atlanta who had a swimming pool and his little girl Bernice 
took a little spill and fell and scraped her knee on the side of the pool, and she came over to her daddy crying, and Dr. King had a plate of, of chicken in front of him, and he, and he took a, 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 a drumstick and, and rubbed it on, on Bernice's <laughs> knee and said, you know there's no better cure for a scraped knee than fried chicken. And, and you know, it, it was such a lovely little detail. You know, we've all been there with our kids. You know, you, you have a kiss to make it better, right? Um, and he was improvising something to distract her and keep her from crying, and I just thought, what a beautiful moment that was. No, it's a great story. And uh, for those who work with Dr. King, as you well know, writing the book and their other stories like that in the book, King, out of a, a, a wicked sense of humor, uh, and that often doesn't come through given how serious he was. He always wanted to be seen as a serious uh, uh, person in public, but in private, he was a jokester, he was a prankster, he had a serious sense of humor, and that story kind of... Too. Love to eat, indeed he did. Uh, it, it underscores that uh, that little girl Bernice is now running the King Center in Atlanta. Uh, so uh, time goes on, time marches on, uh, and it is time now for a new biography about Dr. King. It publishes tomorrow. It's called King: A Life, written by the brilliant uh, Jonathan Ike. Jonathan, thank you for your work. Thank you for your witness. Thank you for this book. I know a lot went into it, man, but you uh, you acquitted yourself nicely, and I thank you once again for this conversation. Well, coming from you, that's a great honor. Tavis, thank you so much. Good to have you on. All the best to you. That's our program for today. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson, followed by Head of the Crypto Curve with Najee Roberts. Old money, new money. Either way, we got you covered. Until tomorrow morning, Lord willing, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith.